Our God is able to deliver, isn't He? In the words of Romans 8, 31, If God be for us, who can be against us? That triumphant note of victory that we've just sung in some of these hymns, some of these thoughts that we've given consideration to, challenges us to come to that last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. And so it is tonight we'll continue our study of that particular book of the Bible. Also, it wouldn't be a, a, a sad time to remind each of us again to keep on our calendar that singing next Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock, the Putnam County Third Sunday Singing, so that we can join our voices together. Uh, be sure to welcome all those who are a guest that day and give appreciation to the opportunity that's ours to lift our voices together in song, praising God together with one another. It is the case tonight as we come to the 16th and 17th chapters of the Revelation. We come to, again, two particular chapters that build upon those chapters that have come before, but also point us in the direction of the chapters that remain. As we come to these tonight, perhaps we might begin by at least remembering some of the things we most recently saw in that last lesson, in which we give, gave thought to chapters 14 and 15. Here is just a very brief set of ideas concerning some of them. But in those chapters, we were given the impression of not only God's tremendous judgment. Remember the sickle that was set forth at the close of chapter 14, in which the sound came forth to reap and to harvest, for in fact the blood flowed so deeply in the last verse of that chapter. God's judgment poured forth upon those who had not turned to Him as He had in fact given order and commandment. But we also saw in chapter 15 the other side of that where there were some. So blessed they were to stand on that glassy sea relatively near the throne of God. The blessing that was theirs to be that close to the Master, to have advanced past persecution and difficulty to arrive at that point, it was a majestic scene indeed. However, chapter 15 closed with a rather ominous scene. On the horizon there was the recognition of this, that the smoke, in fact, from the temple filled it so that the, the bowls that were about to be poured forth were going to be bowls pouring forth God's final acts of judgment and vindictiveness and vindication, I should say, upon the character of those who had opposed the Master and who had opposed the things that were to be noted. It is the case, and in this chapter tonight, these two chapters, as well as chapter 18, we will see the thoroughness of that judgment of God. And so tonight, as we look somewhat briefly at a few of the elements of chapters 16 and 17, we will come to not only see those bowls poured out in chapter 16, we will also see a rather unusual prostitute, a harlot, in chapter 17 riding on an unusual animal, we shall have due course tonight to look at all of that. With that said, let's come again to chapter 16 as we begin our lesson this evening. As we do that, some general comments or remarks might be in order as we set the stage for the pouring out of these bowls. First of all, as you give thought to, there will be seven of them. That immediately reminds us as we read them about two things that we have encountered earlier in the study of the Bible. First of all, these are in the King James translation called plagues. And almost immediately we think back to the book of Exodus. And notice there were ten plagues poured out on the Egyptians. Were there any similarities between those plagues and these plagues that emanate from the pouring out of the bowls in Revelation? In some instances it seems an overwhelming answer to be yes. But also we see some other similarities. 
Earlier in the Revelation, we noticed the trumpets that were blown back in chapter 8. And we find here, again, some similarities between the bowls and those sounds that rung out and the consequences of those trumpet judgments. We'll try to at least hastily make note of them as the lesson proceeds. But one thing it seems so pertinent to note is this. It was the case, wasn't it, that for those plagues in the book of Exodus, after the first couple of them, the resounding note of the Scripture was that God's people, the children of Israel, did not suffer beneath those plagues. It was only the Egyptians. It was the Egyptians who suffered the moraine of beasts. It was the Egyptians who suffered the terribleness of the locusts and the terribleness of the hail and the terribleness of the darkness. And even in that last one, the death of the firstborn, so long as the blood was on the doorpost, the children of Israel were exempt from all of that. It seems as if that is a major lesson to be noted even as these plagues are poured out because there will be a few mentions in the chapter that this was poured out upon those, a selected few, I should say those who in fact were not God's people. Those who were in fact following the mark of the beast. Those who were worshiping the beast. Those who in other ways did not have the seal of the God of, of, the God of heaven on their forehead. If we keep in mind matters like that one, some of these, in fact, will hastily tell us that the major lesson to be seen in the victory, in the fact of the triumph, and in the fact of the overcoming, was for those individuals to be ever steadfast and loyal and true to God and to Christ, no matter what, would be the matters that were going to come before them. And quite frankly, some of the matters they were about to face was going to be difficult. It was going to be life-threatening and it was going to be hard. But through it all, they needed never forget that the one who died for them on the cross was still waiting to receive them in glory, if only they would be loyal to Him, and to never lose hope for and never lose devotion to Him. With that kind of thought in mind, perhaps one more brief set of remarks. It takes us to the falseness that we first saw in chapter 13. It was on that occasion that we saw, painted in a rather graphic picture, two beasts one that rose out of the sea, the second one that in fact rose after that one, but seemed to be the one called the land beast. When we gave note to it, we did appreciate that that particular land beast was one who received his power ultimately from the dragon, but it came through the reality of the first beast. And as we identified or appreciated them, we're now about to see that even this land beast, that though he rose after the first one, and did have a degree of inferiority to it. Nonetheless, he impacted so many and so much by his influence. And tonight, we shall also find that that to be the case as these plagues, as these vials are poured out. And with that, let's pour out the first one. Here again is a picture that we've seen before. Here is just a picture that shows those seven angels, each carrying a bowl with the wrath of God, the greatness of its abomination and about to be poured out in the particular way and on the particular recipients. And so the first angel pours out its bowl. In Revelation 16, we notice the following. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore, upon the men which had the mark of the beast, 
and upon them which worshipped his image. And with that, we have an immediate statement about the character of this opening bowl. We are told, in fact, the following thoughts. First, a foul, and you'll notice the language, very bothersome sore resulted therefrom. Now, the King James read that again slightly differently. But this foul, a very grievous, disgusting kind of thing, but it came out of the pouring forth of this one, and you'll notice that it was not poured on all men, but rather those who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And that takes us back to chapter 13, the character of those who had that mark of the beast, that number 666 that closed chapter 13. And we learn the identity of that thought and the powerful figure of those who did not give their devotion to the Christ, but rather to something related to that first beast or the second one. As those beasts represented carnal matters, human empires, and the factors that would come from them, oh, how tempting it was then, and oh, how tempting it still remains now, to follow the dictates of men rather than the issues that follow from God. In Matthew 15, isn't it still reminded of us how terrible it is when individuals substitute for God's commandments for their own. But beyond that, you'll notice, this one displays a rather interesting similarity to the sixth of the plagues in the book of Exodus. A plague there that was in fact boils and blains upon men. And we might remember again how terrible and how sickening those were described in that book. And yet here, these sores are described in at least a somewhat similar way. But you'll notice it also has a remarkable ring to the first of the trumpet judgments in Revelation 8. All the while, perhaps these are some fair statements to note. When one worshipped the beast then, it was of course displeasing to God. We noticed in chapter 8 how sorely displeasing it was. Perhaps we aren't too shocked here that again it is noted. But may we not forget some events have transpired in between and men still haven't repented. Men still haven't heard the message of God's love and at least responded to it. How terrible it is when individuals turn their back upon God and upon the Christ, ignoring all the blessedness and the grace that comes along with it, ignoring the mercy and the opportunity to for sin to be forgiven. And yet men didn't repent then. Perhaps we should appreciate the fact too that men still will turn their back upon the only message that can save their soul. Might we notice as that particular section comes to its conclusion, one final thought about God's judgment. Though some might be tempted to say, but how could a God of love act in ways described like this that has bowls of wrath and He pours them out on people? But aren't we of a position to learn both Old and New Testament that our God, though loving He is, His patience is such that He gives me an opportunity and He gives them that which can be seen as the ability of theirs and the capacity to, to respond and to do so positively. But when they refuse, there comes a time when in fact the issues of life run out in that patience. Might we notice God's judgment in Romans eleven twenty two? Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God toward them which fail severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in His goodness... We have all been so blessed with God's goodness. May we thus be urgent in our sense to remain ever the faithful member of His kingdom. Perhaps one final thought. 
in Romans 2, verses 6 and 7, God's judgment will be poured, Paul told the Romans, upon those who, for response to the deeds they have done. You'll notice that these here, described in Revelation 16, they worship the beast. It was their choice to do so. But of course, there would be consequences for that choice. We too will face consequences for our choices. The consequences of what we do in this life will emanate on a day of judgment when the books are opened. It is with that thought in mind we come to the second angel who poured out the second bowl. This time you'll notice as we read verse number 3, And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. As God poured out these judgments upon the empire of that day and time in response to their failure, we can see in this principles that challenge us to never forget that the God of heaven, as loving as He is, challenges them of that day as He does us as well to appreciate this. This time it was the sea. And we notice that it became His blood, the blood, in fact, of a dead man. We can easily appreciate that when that said... Everything in the sea died. When God poured out the wrath, there was going to be no safe place, if you please. The nation was going to suffer. Whatever coastal waters, the way its commerce benefited from the sea, all of it was going to, in fact, suffer terribly. You see, our God of heaven knows completely and is in control of everything. Wasn't it true that David echoed that sentiment in Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9? All of it is in the hand of the Master. And he, when he gives his order, all of it responds, be it the land or be it the sea. On this occasion, we quickly notice this sounds a lot like the first of the plagues in the book of Exodus when there the water of the Nile was turned to blood and the Egyptians were longing for water. They dug down in the ground to try and find water. Even the water that was in their basins and pots in their houses had become stenchful and had become unfit to use. You see, God even controlled not just the water directly connected to the Nile, but all that had come from it. Perhaps we can also see from that that it has a remarkable similarity to the second trumpet judgment of Revelation 8. All the while reminded us that what God did then in Revelation 8, He was going to do something like it again, but even worse, pouring out the character of this upon the nation that had rejected Him. With all that in mind, notice what a lesson this is about the falseness that comes from it in words like this. It reminds us again of that false religion to worship the beast. Men have often been so tempted to turn and follow that which isn't the truth. What men have said, what someone has taught from his or her own idea, perhaps from a creed book or otherwise. And time and again that has led precious souls off into eternity to meet God unprepared. You see, God had a God of truth. He has truth He has presented to us. And it is this truth only that can save the souls of men and women. When that gospel is perverted, it's ruined. It is in fact taken to be less than the power that God had intended to remain in it. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other creature under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That refrain of Acts 4 verse number 12 You'll notice that in 2 Peter 2, as well as the book of Jude, we have a rather graphic portrayal of the evil that comes from following false religion. 
We've seen the first two trumpet judgments. We've seen the first two vials poured out reminiscent of all of it. Perhaps to the third when we ought to come. In verse number 4 it says, And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Isn't it significant that we notice carefully in verse 6 that what was involved in this? They have shed the blood of saints and prophets. Back in chapter 6, when we notice the seals being loosed, Beneath the sixth of the, the fifth of those seals, there were souls beneath the altar and they cried, How long, O Lord, until the cause for which we died itself is vindicated. We're beginning to see God's vindication clearly set forth because notice it says, They have shed the blood of saints and prophets. These who have taken the lives of my Christians, these who have taken the lives of my martyrs now, the vials poured forth, and they are suffering, be it commerce, be it the matters of the waters, be it the character of their religion. They are suffering mightily due to their failure and due to the fact they have so persecuted the things of God. Daniel was told a long time ago, and how in fact three times in that book, the statement is made, God rules in the kingdoms of men. That lesson that was so vital for the book of Daniel seems to resurface so powerfully in the Revelation. Though there may be individuals on the throne who are opposed to God, that was true in Daniel's day. It seems to be true in our day. And it was true, wasn't it, in the days of the first century. And yet through it all, our God rules in the kingdoms of men. No wonder we should be urgent and insistent in prayer because there is one more powerful than kings and there is one more powerful than earthly rulers. With that in mind, perhaps we come to notice this third one. On this occasion, the fresh water became blood. And what a resounding note of the justice of God is rung forth here. That verse that we read, verses 6 and 7, with it we again notice some similarity to the first of the plagues in the book of Exodus, the turning of the water to blood. We notice also that the third trumpet judgment seems to resurface again here. There seems to be a remarkable similarity in order between the vials and the trumpet judgments. Beyond that, we quickly notice there it was wormwood and death. Notice here there was also death that was to come with it. And that brings us to one final note. God's proper judgment. You see, men may sometimes question whether God is right or not, but they do grievously err in doing so. Because our God is always right. And when He brings forth judgment, in the reality of these bowls, they came, remember, from Him. These angels came out of the temple. They were carrying that which was the wrath of God in these bowls. It was His conclusion. And He has every right to judge men in their wickedness. He sent His Son that men might not be wicked, that they might have their sins cleansed. But if they refuse, it is their choice. When that day of judgment comes to one and all, and all nations are therein gathered, Matthew 25, 32, it is true that on that occasion in the balance will hang eternity in heaven or an everlastingness in hell. 
men on that occasion will find themselves in one of those regimes or the other. But in so doing, they will not be able to successfully blame God. Heaven has done its part in offering man the opportunity for salvation. The Christ proved it all. He gave His life. He shed His blood. He established the church. And when men shall not receive it, they will answer for that failure on their part. Wormwood is a bitter thing indeed, for in fact, bitterness of peel that is swallowed takes us full circle and brings us to the fourth one. As we turn to verse number 8, let's, look, let's let the fourth angel pour out the fourth bowl. Some of the comments that we shall see following will take us to appreciate that this one reads differently, but it'll have a similarity to some things that we've seen elsewhere. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which had power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. In the pouring out of the fourth one, we now readily see, do we not, that there seems to be a particular figure mentioned. Verse 8 mentions him to scorch men with fire. There was a particular individual that was, in fact, mentioned, and as he punished individuals, as he brought forth persecution on them, it says, This fourth angel poured his vial upon the sun, and power is given unto him. Here are some comments. First, we notice the relationship that seems to exist here to a powerful figure, one who occupied an office whereby he could bring punishment or in fact, he could bring great hardship upon certain individuals. You'll notice that blaspheming was involved. He blasphemed the name of God. This one had little interest in the things of heaven, apparently. In fact, he urged men to do things otherwise. He urged men to proceed in a way different than the truth of God. You'll notice in verse 5, men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God. Furthermore, which had power over these plagues, that being God, but they repented not to give Him glory. Even despite all of it, despite the hardship that came, these still did not repent of their doings. The tragedy of all of that brings us to perhaps this. We saw in chapter 9 a resounding statement of men's refusal to repent. And time and again that has surfaced in this book. Our God is a God who requires repentance. Luke 13, verses 3 and 5, And when men refuse it, when they refuse to change, in humility to admit their error, they shall answer for that stubbornness, and they shall answer for that failure to humble themselves. In the church, we are commanded to have humbleness of mind, Colossians 3, 12. And without that, we're going to have troubles and problems. Thankfully, we can see in this fourth one, Matters that take us to the fifth one. Begin reading with me in verse 10. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast. And his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. One more time, a failure to repent, but in this one we perhaps see these comments. This one was poured out especially upon the seat of the beast where his throne or the center point of his power was located. As you can see in it, the kingdom of the beast was to become full of darkness as a result of it. 
And finally, the citizens of this kingdom, as a result, they gnawed their tongues because of the pain, because of the difficulty that surrounded the pouring out of this particular vial. Through all of that, perhaps I would suggest these thoughts might come before us. Uh, several observations, and we shall be a bit brief as we give some thought to them. But in regard to these observations, this certainly might well be noted. First, again, some similarities. First, the similarity to the fifth trumpet judgment. It was on that occasion the locusts brought the darkness. Here, as you can appreciate with me, those that were hurt did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. I wonder if we give thought to this one. Notice again the way that it reads. Again, verses 10 and 11. It was these that blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. Maybe these thoughts are fair to conclude. What was the seed of this beast? We learn in chapter 13 the identity of it. The seed, of course, would have been the very city itself, Rome. With it, we now notice some particularly egregious plagues were going to come its way. Not just other stretches of the empire. Not just other regimes or regions wherever they may have been. The Roman Empire was vast. The largest empire to that point the world had ever known. However, the city itself was going to suffer mightily. This particular plague, the vial poured out, was not in fact going to miss it. And with it, darkness. All the ungodliness that they had brought on others, they would in fact receive. Somewhat reminds us of Ecclesiastes 11 verse 1, doesn't it? Cast thy bread upon the waters, and it shall return unto thee not many days hence. It was true that it was coming full circle. What they had in fact done so meanly and ungodly to Christians far and wide was ultimately going to come back to haunt them. God takes note when individuals, in fact, treat His Christians so. Their ultimate punishment may not come in this life, but often it does, at least in part, but it's for sure on the day of judgment. It shall all be brought forth, for nothing shall be concealed, Luke 12, verses 1 through 3. On this occasion, we notice there was a reduction in the power of the beast when this came because they gnawed their tongues in pain. They recognized their end, it seems, was relatively near. Furthermore, that re religion that came with the beast, that false religion, is shortly to be crushed in the sense that the greatness of the power was going to be removed. It is with those thoughts in mind, it brings us to the sixth angel. The sixth bowl as it was poured out. We begin reading in verse number 12. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief." Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together unto a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. That's reading through verse 16 of Revelation 16. With it, here are some thoughts and comments. First, poured out on a river, this time, the Euphrates River. That particular river 
we will remember, was such that it played a significant role because we saw it already way back earlier in Revelation chapter 7 and 8. On this occasion, we noticed the water was dried up, allowing apparently enemy forces to advance. As such, here are some thoughts. Three unclean beasts like frogs were seen, but I would ask that we take careful note of the identity of them. Again, in Revelation, this is what John saw. What did it mean? Verse 13, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon. First, where did they come from? Out of the mouth of the dragon. And who is the dragon? Chapter 12, the devil. So this which emanates from the devil has a three-pronged attack. Three unclean spirits. And we notice, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, all of these are going together, the beast, the false prophet, and the devil. We easily conclude as we put them together, the devil in fact has an attack upon those of that day, and in principle those of our day, and his attack involves false religion, things that are not gospel truth, and yet men accept and believe it. But furthermore, you'll notice, it also includes the mouth of the beast, that which the beast stood for lawlessness in terms of governments or other principalities or powers that influence men, and they in weakness will follow, not remaining loyal even when it costs them difficulty. That was the greatest temptation of the Roman day, wasn't it? When there were individuals who were standing over you, commanding you to bow and worship this bust of the Caesar. And yet as a Christian, one couldn't do that. Or one standing over you with a sword in hand and say, You may not enter the marketplace unless you pay homage and worship the emperor. But yet a Christian couldn't do that. And yet if you couldn't do that, you weren't allowed to enter. And where were you going to buy food for your family? And where were you going to buy the things necessary to take care of yourself? It was a life or death decision. No wonder we see the devil has tools individuals, even forces that he employs. You'll notice beyond that, there was a place of gathering known as Armageddon. And oh, how much teaching has come forth concerning this one verse in the book of Revelation. Armageddon, this is the only time in the Revelation the word occurs. And in fact, it's the only time in all the Bible that this word per se occurs like this. Some observations might be in order concerning this first, the similarity to the sixth trumpet judgment. Again, it has worked, marched in order. A reduction in great power was to be seen, and here again is the mention made of this dragon. The work that he does. May we never think that Satan is not at work in this world. He is. We see it in principle seen here, and it shall remain so until the end of time. Now, he may use different things now that he did then, but he is still at work. Some additional thoughts about these matters. First of all, this beast that we've just seen here mentioned, one of those matters of attack takes us back to that land beast, the false religion. And with it, these thoughts take us to Armageddon. If you watch much television evangelism, these individuals who seemingly with such confidence will stand before audiences and preach the fiery nature of a so-called Armageddon and tell us that the, the events near the end of time will all surround it. 
and how that there are forces and the Antichrist will rise and finally at this place he will be defeated. In principle, there isn't a word of truth in any of that. First of all, in terms of Antichrist, we've already stated many times that there were many of them in John's day. 1 John 2 verses 18 and following. But here, what may be the significance of this Armageddon? First of all, what does the word mean? It literally means hill or city of Megiddo. And immediately we're taken back to the Old Testament. The city of Megiddo played an interesting set of roles in the Old Testament. First of all, it was a place in which Israel enjoyed some great victories. It was also a place where Israel suffered some dramatic defeats. In other words, it was an occasion, a place in which there were times of celebration, but there were times of sadness due to the defeats. I've listed just a few of the thoughts. First of all, it was, it was positioned near the valley of Jezreel. Notice it was there where Sisera was defeated. That was a great thing because Sisera had, in the book of Judges, been an opponent to the people of God. But then, it was there where both Josiah and Ahaziah met their death. Two of the kings of Israel, and especially Josiah, that godly king who attempted so greatly to turn God's people back to where they belonged. He died at Megiddo. Can we not see that this was a way of describing that there was to be a time of great victory, but also on this occasion, great defeat? And isn't it so in religion? Think in principle about that great final day. There's going to be a day of great celebration for those that are ready, but it's going to be a time of indescribable horror for those that are not. Thus, the same occasion will be one of great victory for some, but great loss for others. I might ask, as you give thought to this matter, sometimes we in our world will use a statement like, he or she has met their Waterloo, reminding us of Napoleon and the fact that it was at Waterloo when ultimately he met his defeat despite the fact he had had much victory prior to that. You and I might think of Armageddon, at least in a figurative way like that. You see, all of us, nations, can well meet their Waterloo because they shall not be allowed to go on unpunished, opposing God. Perhaps in light of all of that, you'll notice we do arrive at the seventh bowl and the seventh angel. Verse 17 reads, And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. I would ask you to notice this one was poured out into the air, and the declaration was this, It is done. Following that, several more thoughts come before us. With voices and thunders and lightnings, we quickly appreciate there was division into three parts, and judgment fell upon Babylon. Again, that's what John saw. What did it mean? Who is this Babylon and what does it signify? 
There was, after all, a literal Old Testament Babylon. Is that mentioned again here? If not, what else is its significance? Here are some observations again. Note the similarity to the seventh trumpet judgment in Revelation 8. You'll note that there is reference to a final defeat. Here it is done. The destruction that's herein described was a final matter. God's long-suffering character had run out. They had had their opportunity for repentance, but they had not. Each person in regard to life, of course, has a parallel circumstance. There is a time and an opportunity while breath is within us, but once that is gone, the opportunity for, for repentance is no more. You'll notice in Revelation 17, 9, we soon will have an identification of this Babylon. And might we say Babylon will be the central feature of the next two chapters, chapters 17 and 18. With it, how aware God is of sinful behavior. It takes us back to Ezekiel 8. When there there were people who said, God doesn't see us. He is not aware of our sin. And Ezekiel said, oh, yes, he is. God sees everything. He knows everything about you and I, even the thoughts that are ours. Some of the people of the day of Revelation needed to relearn that lesson as well, didn't they? Finally, the seriousness is seen as we give thought to even Hebrews 10.31. With the greatness of this fact of it is done, we might be tempted to think, well, what then follows? If these scenarios are completing it, why doesn't this close the book? The fact is, when he says it is done, the completeness of that which is done and the earnestness of its fullness is going to carry on into the next chapter. Here's a picture that highlights in one panorama all seven of these bowls that we've seen poured out. One by one, all the features were stated, and might we notice that those who were the recipients certainly were going to suffer mightily as a result of the particular bowl or plague that came upon them. With the various remarks, that now takes us to chapter 17. And with it, we notice the 18 verses. I would ask that you read that with me, and then our comments concerning the chapter will follow based upon that reading. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns." And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand. And upon her forehead was, the name, was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw a woman drunken with the blood of the, martyr, the, blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration." And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman, and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast which thou sawest was, and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of, of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was, and is not, and yet is." 
And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received noeth no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. And He saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill His will, and to agree, and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city, which reigneth over the kings of the earth. And now, with that chapter at least read in our hearing, we come to a recognition that again John is invited to take part in the scene. Verse 1, One of those angels said, Come hither, and I will show thee the judgment of the great whore. John was in fact, as often as he's been told to write what he's, he's seeing, now he is told, You come here and I'll show you other matters, things that relate to the judgment of the great whore. We encountered a woman in chapter 12, but on that occasion she wasn't called a harlot. This time we encounter a woman who's called a prostitute, a harlot, a whore. And with it, we notice that she sits on many waters, which we later are told represent peoples and nations and kingdoms and tongues. We furthermore appreciate that this whore, this harlot, that takes us back to its usage in the Old Testament. On a number of occasions in the Old Testament, particularly the prophets of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, we recall that harlot, the word was used to represent falseness in religion. Those who in fact worshipped Baal or those who worshipped other kinds of falsenesses. And God on more than, more than one occasion asked them, So why, speaking to Israel, have you played the harlot and in fact begun to participate in religion? I'm your true husband. Why not remain loyal and true to me rather than playing around with these other so-called gods and goddesses? I'm the one that's been true to you. In fact, Ezekiel 16 is so graphic in that regard that it takes one a rather serious gulp to read all of it. To hear God talk to them about how they had been so untrue to Him, I would invite us to give thought that this Babylon is called a city in the closing verse of the chapter. Amongst all the things here represented, he's talking about a city. Represented as the powerful character of this city and all that is emanated from it, they are in fact going to meet their judgment. And with it, that brings us to the bottom. This city had been influential because so many, it seems, had drunk of the fornication of her wine. She had been sufficiently powerful that by her effect and influence she had led others into the same error of which she was guilty. God says all of you are going to now suffer as a result of it. With that said, here's a picture of this interesting looking beast that we've seen. 
and this harlot that's riding on it. It's a scarlet-colored beast. And we notice she too is clothed partially in scarlet. And you'll notice that she, as she's riding upon this beast, has the appearance of gaiety and happiness. When all the while, of course, this chapter tells us about the judgment that shall be hers. This is a very similar relation to that mention of Babylon we saw in chapter 14. I would ask, we not divorce the two, but to keep in mind, Babylon there, we learn what it represented. And we, of course, appreciate the same here. That this particular matter takes us to an entity that arose from the Roman Empire. And it somewhat continued after it. All that it represented was found represented in the character seen in the nature of what we've seen unfolded in chapter 17. You see, whatever Rome represented in that ancient era, the character of how God finished and brought judgment upon her, we notice that Rome in part was to reappear. Note again the reading of verse 8 with me. The beast that thou sawest was and is not. Thus this beast that then was, it fell off into weakness for a time, but then he quickly says it's going to reappear. It will reappear with a degree of power and majesty and might. But John quickly is led to appreciate the fact this second appearance is just as evil and just as ungodly as the former had been. And furthermore, God too will bring judgment upon it as well. The beast had seven heads and ten horns, just like Revelation 13's description. They are parallel in every regard in that, in that sense. We notice the seven heads were seven mountains, and we're told that's seven kings. As you give thought to the realization of those kings and what they were brought for us to see, we remember that various of the emperors in Rome were such that as one gives thought to the counting of them, and the appreciation of them, it does give us some measure of the time frame of which we're speaking. But five of them had fallen. One of them then was. One of them was not yet come. But the eighth one, the one that he quickly mentions next, was of the beast, he says. As you give thought to the realization of what Rome, Rome brought, first there was the civil power. And as much as she opposed God's people... There was also a religious aspect that really was to emanate somewhat shortly thereafter. It too was going to be just as mightily evil. It was going to redound unto all the fullness that would in fact bring the fullness of God's wrath and judgment. The ten horns were ten kings. As these political forces are mentioned on that occasion and that which they bring us to see, some of the last thoughts of our lesson tonight for that 17th chapter might be summarized in these words. I would ask you to notice the woman was arrayed in such a way she looked glamorous. But ultimately she wasn't. Remember, she was a whore. But she looked so glamorous. It had the appearance of being appropriate, but underneath it was filthy. It was awful. It was ungodly. Perhaps as a principled lesson, we might see again that things may be very different than the way they appear. That religion that looked so noble and so glamorous was in fact that which would separate one from God. All of that emanated out of the things we've seen in chapter 17. As one reviews what we've seen, this woman was riding, of course, on a scarlet-colored beast. That sea beast we saw again back in chapter 13. The Roman Empire was represented there. So this beast, this woman, is riding on something emanating directly out of Rome. But again, how awful was her nature?
that false religion that came to be. That emanated in, of course, the reality of the Catholic Church first, but all the things that came out of it, how sorely it has led so many men astray. You'll notice one interesting feature in verse 6. John marveled. And the angel asked, Why did you marvel? As if this ought not be a shocking thing to you in light of what you've already seen. You'll notice, had this simply been the political forces, John would have had no need to marvel. For that's what the saints had asked for, in essence. But now, John marveled because apparently he was astounded at this judgment that was going to now come on that which emanated out of this Roman Empire. In fairness to all of that, John's amazement apparently would lead us to conclude our lesson tonight with a triumphant note one more time of victory. The victory that we might well appreciate is seen as we close this chapter. We've seen the development of the beast. That development seen very interestingly in first what started in chapter 13. But that development has now taken us to the victory of the Lamb in verse 14 of chapter 17. I chose that as the lesson text. I think it's worthy to read it again. These shall make war with the Lamb. These that he's made mention of in terms of the horns, in terms of the other matters concerning this beast and the things that went with it. But it says, the Lamb shall overcome them. Jesus will win. He always will. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Do you, my friend, want to be the called, the chosen, and the faithful? He says there were those who were going to be victorious with the Lamb. But notice how awful have been those who didn't repent, those who had the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped the beast in his image. It is they who have been the recipients of all the wrath we've seen, really, in the last three to four chapters. But how blessed are those who are the called and the faithful and the chosen. In closing this lesson tonight, God's will will be completed. That's highlighted as chapter 17 closes. As we've used our time this evening to study about these matters, I would suggest the principles are as needful today as they were then. The times of our lives may not be such that we're threatened with physical death upon serving the Lord. But may we never forget that that dragon is waiting. He's waiting in temptation. And even he himself can appear as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11 verses 14 and following. We too can be fooled or deceived if we aren't careful. Tonight, if you need to respond to the God's call of invitation, why not do that this very evening? If we could assist you perhaps in your initial response to the gospel by taking your confession, affirming your repentance and belief, and assisting you in baptism, what a lovely occasion of your spiritual birthday it would be. But if you have become a Christian and you've known, tasted the goodness of all of that, Hebrews 6 verses 4 and 5, but you've not been faithful and true to it, you've begun to lapse into following false things, hurtful things, ungodly things. Why not come back to your first love tonight? We're going to sing a song of encouragement, and if you'd come forward, we'd be honored to pray with you, pray on your behalf for God to forgive you, for that is that second law of pardon highlighted in Scripture. If we could help you tonight in either of those ways, we would urge you, as does the Lord, to come while together we stand and while we sing.